listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So last week, we started a new series called Jesus People. By the way, my new book's out today, Jesus People, Communities Formed by the Beatitudes. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, uh, and so we're, we're, we're broadening this beyond the Beatitudes. I, I wrote about the Beatitudes, but we're broadening it. We're, we're covering the entire Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So, so last week was sort of like an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, before we even get into it, I want you to understand what we're getting into. And uh, how do we take it in general? Is this something that we're actually called to live? So, so the answer to that is yes, but we can't do it by ourselves, right? We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And we need one another. Can't do it by ourselves. So, um, so we gave an overview last week, and today we're going to begin our journey through the beginning section, which is the Beatitudes. There are eight of them, and so counting this week for the next eight weeks, we're going to tackle one by one each of the Beatitudes. We'll, we'll look at the first one today. I want to begin by showing you a couple pictures, um, just a couple pictures. Both of these are from Israel, and uh, this picture here that you're looking at is called the Church of the Beatitudes on the Mount of Beatitudes, off the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is traditionally the spot that has been, has been identified as a probable location of where Jesus might have given this sermon. I'll, I'll tell you why a little bit in just a moment. But this is a beautiful place. It's one of my favorite spots in Israel. Um, I, I think there even are some nuns or some monks or something that live here and pray here and do all kinds of stuff. And there's a place where you can stay if you, uh, if you, if you can book it uh, far enough in advance. But there's beautiful gardens and mosaics and art. It's a wonderful place to just spend a whole afternoon and pray. And uh, it's just gorgeous. This church was built, I think, in the 1930s, so it's about 80, 90 years old. It's an eight-sided church. It's octagonal. Anybody want to guess why it has eight sides? Eight Beatitudes. There you go. So when you go to Israel, you can tell the tour guide that you already know that it has eight sides because of the Beatitudes. So, um, and then I want to show you one more picture. This is a picture that I took from the Mount of Beatitudes. You can see the Sea of Galilee right there. I, I really meant to put another picture on here, but we'll just go with this one. Um, but, but, off to the right of the picture, you, you can't see it. That's really what I meant to show you. But off to the right of this picture, there's like a natural inlet. And here's one of the reasons why they think this might be the place where Jesus gave the sermon. It's, it forms, and you'll see if you were to go, it forms like a natural amphitheater. And all along the sides of those hills, there's like boulders, like hundreds and hundreds of boulders that you can imagine people conceivably could have sat as they're listening to someone deliver a sermon. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons. Another reason is it's very close. It's within walking distance of Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived at this time. So reasonably, you could suspect this very well may be the place where Jesus could have done a number of things. He, I mean, most assuredly, he did some stuff right here. And, um, you know, even, even the, the miracle of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, 
you know, this would have been an ideal spot. Um, so I just want you to, I wanted to show you this for a couple reasons. Number one, because I want you to have some scenery in your mind as you're imagining and picturing, you know, this Jesus, this scene of his, his disciples are right in front of him. He's giving them this instruction, but the crowd is present too, and they're, they're hearing this. Um, I want you to see and imagine the scenery. Secondly, I also want to whet your appetite a little bit to hopefully want to go to Israel with me. Um, I'm hoping, this is my intention, it could change. I'm hoping the Monday after Thanksgiving 2022, uh, for about 10 or 11 days, so it would be the Monday after Thanksgiving, start putting some money aside, and hopefully by the end of this year, I'll have more information for you. All right, y'all ready? Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's get into the first one, and, 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 um, and let's even just pray. Before we, we're not going to read it just yet, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, once again for your word and for your spirit. Now, God, we place ourselves humbly. In fact, may we, even in this moment, be enacting this first beatitude. May we humble ourselves, not just part of us, every part of us, every preference, every premonition, every thought pattern, every assumption we place at your feet we empty ourselves so that you can fill us today. We want to be people of your truth, people that are filled with your life, people that are walking your way, Jesus people. So as we begin this journey together, open our hearts and minds, and may we cooperate with your Holy Spirit to receive deeply the word you intend for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people were struggling, they were hurting, they were demoralized because they were living under the heavy weight of being ruled over by foreign powers, pagan empires, for hundreds of years. First, it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, and on and on. And then finally, around the time of Jesus, it's the Romans, who were in some ways the worst of all of them. And so this was a very dark period for God's people. Externally, just the oppression of living under these pagan powers. And then internally, the crushing shame of having lost your sense of national identity. Israel is no longer a sovereign nation. They're, they're just like a vassal to this empire, these empires that are changing hands. But the status quo is the same. No matter who's ruling, they're, they're, they're being ruled over and overpowered and oppressed and, and all of this. And, and so there was just a sense of crushing shame for, that was sustained over centuries. Periodically, God would raise up prophets. And by God's spirit, these prophets would speak words of hope and coming restoration. And these prophets would announce to the people that God is not going to leave things the way they are. There's coming a day, God himself, Yahweh, is going to intervene. He's going to involve himself in this issue. And he's going to save you and redeem you, just as he did your ancestors when he rescued you out of Egypt. There is a promised land that God has in mind. The kingdom of God, the kingdom. God's going to restore this kingdom. 
And he's going to raise up someone. He's going to raise up a king like David, a prophet like Moses. He's going to raise up a Messiah through whom God will establish his rule, not just over one piece of land, over the entire world. And God's going to set things right. And he's going to usher in a reign of peace and shalom, and it's going to last for all of eternity. These are the kinds of things that the prophets had been telling the people of Israel through these horrific years. And some of them had lost hope, but many of them, many of them um, were waiting, and they were longing, and they were yearning, and they were anticipating. And around the time that Jesus showed up, the anticipation, the excitement had reached a fever pitch. They're longing for this kingdom that the prophets have been talking about. And then along comes this young upstart prophet from Nazareth. And he starts itinerating around the tiny little villages of Galilee. And he has this groundbreaking announcement. Hey, this kingdom, just hold it on the title slide, Doug. This kingdom that you've been longing for, that the prophets have been telling you about, this kingdom, it's here. It's at hand. It's in your midst. It's right in front of your face. And then he starts healing people and curing deaf ears and opening blind eyes and driving out demons and raising the dead and calming storms. And people are like, wait a second, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. If he has this kind of authority, if he could do this stuff, then maybe this thing that he's announcing that the kingdom is here, maybe there's some validity to what he's saying. And so he's amassing these crowds. So people are wondering, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the king. And the kingdom really is here. But they had all these questions about, what, well, what kind of kingdom is it going to be? What's the kingdom going to look like? And how's this kingdom going to come? You know, there were some, a lot of people had some assumptions about these things that needed to be addressed, needed to be confronted. And so Jesus ascends up this mountain, maybe the one that you were looking at, who knows? And he gives this famous Sermon on the Mount. And at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first part of it is what we call the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude. It comes from the Latin word beatus. It just means blessing. Eight prophetic blessings that we find at the very beginning. Contrary to popular assumption, the Beatitudes are not giving us advice or instruction. They're, they're, not, they're not formulas for success. The Beatitudes are simply announcements. Through these eight statements, Jesus is announcing the kinds of people who are going to find the arrival of his kingdom to be good news. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who are hungering and thirsting and craving and aching for things to be made right, the merciful, the pure-hearted, the peacemakers, and those who are suffering for the right reasons. Jesus is announcing in his most important address at the very beginning. These are the kinds of people who are going to experience the life of God's kingdom, but they are also the ones through whom the kingdom is going to grow and expand in the world. 
Though the world itself and though the system of our culture tends to trample on these kinds of people, Jesus is saying these are the kinds of people through whom his kingdom is going to advance in the earth. People who are just like himself. So let's look at the very first beatitude. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two Greek words that can be translated as the English word poor. The first one is the word penes, P-E-N-E-S, penes. This word refers to those who were certainly poor, they were certainly struggling, but they still had the ability to sustain themselves. They still had the capability of working a job to provide for themselves. These would be... um, You know, like day laborers toiling out in the fields, working hand to mouth. You know, you and I would say working paycheck to paycheck. It might surprise you to learn that in the ancient world, the vast majority of people fell into this category. There was no middle class back then. You had, you know, the wealthy, powerful elite, and a few people belonged to that category, but the vast majority of folks actually were characterized by this word panace. They were poor. They were the peasant class. So they were sustaining themselves, providing for their basic needs, but they weren't saving any extra money. They weren't investing. They weren't amassing, accumulating wealth. It was impossible. They were, they were living in um, a, a world where you know, the, the powerful were pillaging people's profits, sucking profits out of your production with exorbitant taxes. So you, you had no hope for upward mobility. You, were, you are where you're going to be for the rest of your life. So that's the first word that can be translated poor, panace. Poor people, peasants, but still self-sufficient. But there's another Greek word that can be translated poor. It's the Greek word patokos. Everybody say patokos. It is a fun word to say. Patokos, P-T-O-C-H-O-S. Patokos is not just someone who's poor. It's someone who's totally destitute. And not only are they struggling, they have no capability to provide for themselves. They are not capable of functioning in society. This would be, for example, a crippled beggar or a blind beggar on the side of the road who cannot work. Or it could be a penniless widow whose husband just died in a patriarchal world. It could be Someone who, I mean, they wouldn't have understood it this way in the ancient world, but this could be someone who's suffering with severe mental issues and they just can't work a normal functioning job. And understand in the ancient world, there were no social safety nets. There was no welfare, unemployment benefits, social security, nothing like that. And so the Patokoi were people who, they are so destitute that apart from the aid and help of others, They have no hope of survival. This is actually the word Jesus uses in this beatitude. He says, blessed are the patokoi in spirit. So this is a spiritual quality. Who are the poor in spirit? These are the spiritually destitute. Those spiritual beggars who understand that I cannot afford the luxury of arrogant pretense. And they're willing to go to the most desperate lengths to receive their sustenance from God alone. 
These are people who have no delusion of self-reliance. And they realize that apart from the ongoing stream of God's mercy pouring into my life every day, I've got nothing else to satisfy my parched soul. To be poor in spirit, first of all, there's a couple facets of it I want to highlight today, but the first one is this. To be poor in spirit, to be spiritually destitute means to have a bankrupted ego. To be totally soaked in humility, to have the kind of heart that says legitimately, not just the mouth, the heart, that says, God, as we sang a moment ago, have your way. And I don't care what it demands from me. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say about me. I've got one life. I want to give it to Jesus. I want to live it faithfully. Have your way. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Not my will. Yours be done. And I think it's very interesting. This is the first beatitude. And I think it's because it's the foundational beatitude. Everything else is going to build on this. You'll see later in the series, Jesus says things like, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted. All of these things are essential parts of the journey. As you follow the Jesus way, you're going to follow him through these types of facets of life. You're going to become a merciful person by God's spirit. The spirit's going to form you into uh, being a peacemaker. The Spirit's going to form you into somebody who's capable of of absorbing suffering and persecution for the sake of things being made right. So all of these are part of following Jesus, but let me tell you something. You cannot consistently become a person of mercy, peacemaking, and absorbing suffering if you first don't have a bankrupted ego. If you're not a person who's characterized by a certain poverty of spirit. This This is the foundation of the Jesus way. The heart that says, not my will. And it's not a one-time decision. It's an ongoing way of life. I have to, every day, as a pastor, say no to myself. And sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. In big ways and small ways, God calls us, by God's Spirit, to live a life of an ongoing poverty of spirit. It is only these kinds of people that are capable of continuing on the path of the Beatitudes. Now, Luke's version of this Beatitude is a little bit different. You'll see in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. Same thing, despite what anybody will tell you. Matthew just likes the term kingdom of heaven, but they mean the same thing. But what, but what really I want to draw your attention to is the first thing. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke says poor. So it seems here the emphasis is on economic desperation rather than um, spiritual condition. And yet in the ancient world, I would argue these were often two sides of the same coin. Throughout those centuries, especially in thinking of the Jewish people, You know, though the rulers and the empires would change hands periodically, the constant pressure on the poor peasant class, it was just relentless and sometimes it was unbearable. 
And by and large, it was because the poor had been so beaten down by life in, in a society that was beyond their capability of influencing and affecting change. These people in particular were specially primed for the inbreaking of God's kingdom because they had nothing to lose. They had no power to lose. They had no wealth to lose. So, so these people in particular, not always, but in general, um, their economic desperation was often a reflection, a mirror image of their spiritual condition. And they're crying out for hundreds of years, God save us, God rescue us, God deliver us. And then God in the flesh arrives and in his most important sermon, in the very first line, he turns the world upside down. I wanna show you this um, particular version of, of Matthew's beatitude. I, I like the way this is, I, I think this is right on target as I understand it. How blessed are those who are destitute in spirit because the kingdom from heaven belongs to them. I like that. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. The kingdom from heaven belongs to them. Even just a quick summary of the gospels shows that these were exactly the kinds of people who were beneficiaries of Jesus's finest work. In a world that was dominated by the wealthy and powerful elite, Jesus chose to work on the fringes of society placing a particular focus on the weak and the discarded and the powerless. One of my favorite examples is a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. We read about him in Mark 10. Bartimaeus lives in the ancient city of Jericho, which is just north of Jerusalem, kind of like the last stop before you get to Jerusalem. So if you got to fill up your donkeys with gasoline or whatever, you know, um, by the time we reach the story of Bartimaeus, Jesus is now the most famous man in the Middle East. He's a household name. Every, he's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people following him everywhere because they know he's going to Jerusalem. And what do they think he's going to do in Jerusalem? Well, it was wrongheaded, but they thought that this Messiah figure is going to do what they thought the Messiah was going to do which is he's going to go into Jerusalem and start a revolt. He's going to lead a militia, kick the Romans out, usurp control of the temple, reestablish the throne of David, reestablish Israel's national sovereign identity, and lead a successful Jewish revolution. That's what they, that's what they just know Jesus is going to do when he gets to Jerusalem, and they want to be a part of it. They want to see it. They want a front row seat. And so hundreds, masses of people are, are with him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Jericho, the last stop. It's like, I think it's like maybe 20 miles from Jerusalem. I might be totally overestimating that. I'm going to get it right for our Sunday morning crowd. <laughs> you guys are always my guinea pigs. But it's very close to Jerusalem. And so here's Jesus. Picture the scene. Jesus is walking down the major thoroughfare of Jericho. There, there's a massive crowd on both sides of the road. It's, it's a huge frenzy of activity. People are dancing in the streets. It's the Rose Bowl Parade. It's Mardi Gras, where I'm from. There's music. There's dancing. They're chanting his name. They're singing his praise. 
And here's this blind beggar, this, this typical patokos, sitting on the side of the road. He's heard stories about Jesus. He's gotten wind that Jesus is coming to his town. And he's sitting on the side of the road, as beggars do when they hear that crowds are coming. He's probably not the only beggar. Probably a lot of beggars. But Bartimaeus, this blind man, senses the activity moving across the road. He gets an idea that perhaps this is the moment Jesus may be walking in front of him. And so amidst all of the noise, Bartimaeus at the top of his lungs cries out. I'm not going to cry out. Microphone's right here. But, but he's, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him tell him, just be quiet. Let him enjoy his moment. Look at the scene. This is all about Jesus, not about you. Keep your mouth shut. You're a beggar. Who, who wants anything to do? Just be quiet. Let Jesus have his moment. We're singing. We're gathered in his honor. We're mobilizing around him. And, and Bartimaeus just ignores them and does it again. I love the audacity. Almost, like you, so many people in the Gospels that Jesus touches, the woman with the issue of blood, they just had a bold audacity, sometimes to break the rules to get to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He says it again. Now think about, meditate on this for a moment. Imagine you're in Jesus' position. Imagine you're walking down Olive Avenue and there's thousands of people lining the road and they're chanting your name and they're banging their drums for your, for your praise. What would be our instinct in a moment like that? I, I think it would be, man, let me soak this up. Wow, let me enjoy this with proud self-satisfaction. This blind beggar cries out, have mercy on me. Jesus stops dead in his tracks and turns around and looks at the man. Ask him a fascinating question. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus doesn't waste any words in any time. I want to see. Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. And I love how the story ends. It says, immediately, oh, let me get it right. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. That term, the way, it's not capitalized, but it's, it's, got, it's, it's pregnant with double meaning there. The term the way is a euphemism for what you and I today call Christianity, but long before it was ever called Christianity, it was first called the way. In fact, there's, church, there's tradition that tells us that this guy, the reason we know Bartimaeus' name is because later he became a, a leader in the church. I think he was one of the, the leaders even in the church of Jerusalem at one point. Again, I'll get that right for our Sunday crowd. <laughs> I got to do my research a little bit more, but... This story is representative of a consistent pattern in Jesus' ministry that's found basically on every page of the Gospels. Jesus just paid close attention to the least 
of society, the marginalized, the, um, the impoverished, the blind, the lame, women and children who were seen as second-class citizens. It's revolutionary the way Jesus treated these people. We take it for granted in our Western society that, of course, women matter, babies matter, you know, the impoverished have value. In the Roman world, these were not commonly held virtues. Jesus completely changed the way that the world views these kinds of people. Without the influence of Jesus, life in the United States would not look the way it does right now, as bad as things are on some fronts. I'm getting off my notes, but I just want to make that point. We, we take for granted the, the powerful impact Jesus has made on society. Even many people who were stigmatized by their own scandalous sin found a welcoming embrace in Jesus' kingdom. Whether someone was an adulterer or a tax collector or a prostitute or a centurion or a Samaritan or, or any of these types of folks, these were the kinds of people that were despised by, by the religious elite. And yet, the Gospels are full of examples of notorious sinners like these being transformed by their encounters with Jesus. Donald Craybill, who, who wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The Upside Down Kingdom, I, I highly recommend it. It's great, great down-to-earth reading. He just, I, I like this little quote here that I highlighted. He said, Jesus often hangs out with a big band of nobodies from nowhere. He welcomes the throwaways on the social trash pile. Instead of spitting on them, as most people do, Jesus touches them, loves them, and names them God's people. These Patokoian spirit had no impressive feats of devotion to stand upon. And none of them had anything to offer Jesus in return. And Jesus had nothing to gain by befriending these people, he, had, he reaped nothing but scorn and suspicion by identifying with the likes of tax collectors and sinners and the infirmed. But there's something about a heart of humble desperation that God simply cannot refuse. Something else about poverty and spirit. I wanna give you another facet that, that just comes to mind. I think a person who in the scriptures represents for us what it looks like to live with an ongoing poverty of spirit is Jesus' mother, Mary. The very beginning, when we first meet Mary, she's a little girl no older than 12 years old. My little girl's about to turn 12. 12 year old Mary, and she's just a basic human being. There's nothing outwardly remarkable about Mary. Modest girl living by modest means in a no-name town. And an angel appears and explains to her uh, that even though she has not consummated her marriage, she is going to conceive a child supernaturally. And this child, by the way, is going to be called son of the most high God. And there's no way this little 12-year-old girl can even begin to comprehend what this is going to mean, except I'm, I'm sure she has some sense that this is going to turn her life upside down. And here's Mary's simple response. Let it be with me according to your word. 
Fast forward 25, 30 years. Mary is at a wedding with her adult son, Jesus. And they run out of wine, which would have been a, a matter of deep shame in that culture. And when Mary explains the problem to Jesus, she then turns to the servants at the wedding and says, do whatever he tells you. We don't have a whole lot of quotes from Mary in the Bible. These are two of them. Notice the similarity. Let it be with me according to your word. In other words, do whatever you want. 25 years later plus, do whatever he tells you. See, a person who's characterized by ongoing poverty, poverty of spirit, they, they just have this unassuming obedience to the will of God, whatever it's going to mean. God, whatever I got to let go of, whatever plans I have to throw in the garbage, whoever's opinions I've got to set aside, do whatever you want. It is these kinds of people who open the door for God's deep, transforming work in the world. I want to show you a painting on, my, on this pulpit here. And I want to explain this painting to you. This painting was uh, done by a, a girl in our church in Louisiana. Her name is Sam. Sam is roughly around my age. She loves Jesus with all her heart. Her, her dad just passed away a few weeks ago. Sam uh, is mentally impaired, and, and she functions on the cognitive level of a five-year-old. She, she can't read, but her parents, you know, would, would read the Bible to her every single night. And, and that's where her um, knowledge comes from. And, and, and so she, when it comes to matters of faith, Sam has a, um, a very simple understanding of these things. But she... she deeply loves Jesus. She's been through so much uh, physical pain throughout her life, but she's one of, every time I, I would see her, she's just so joyful. Sam took painting lessons. Uh, she, I think she continues to take them. She's taken them for about 11 or 12 years. And she painted this painting. It's, if you can't see it, it's, it's the cross with the crown of thorns with three nails. And um, when she painted this painting, her mother asked her, what, what, honey, what motivated you to paint this? And she said, Jesus told me to. And then when her mom asked her, well, who are you going to give this painting to? She says, I don't know yet. About a year later, she saw me for the first time. And when she saw me, she told her mom, that's him. That's the one. He's the one I painted that painting for. And so she gave, this, gave me this painting. It is one of the most precious gifts I've received as a pastor in my life. It's uh, sat in my office in Louisiana. And I brought it with me and it sits in my office here. And every morning I get to my office and, and I just begin my day with uh, prayer. And I, I have kind of a morning prayer liturgy that I go through. That If you've bought one of my, my first book, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But, it, but, but I go through a, a prayer routine. And, and part of that, and I've been doing this for years, part of it right in the middle is I pray the Beatitudes with deep reflection. I just pray them slowly. I hope, hope you're memorizing the Beatitudes with me. But I'll sit in my chair, it's like my prayer chair, and I'll sit there and I'll, as, as often when I pray that first beatitude, I like to glance at Sam's painting. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as I, as I reflectively pray those words, you know, I'll look at the cross and I'll look at the crown of thorns and, 
and the nails, and I'll think about what these symbols represent. But, but I often think about the person who painted this painting. I think about Sam. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, I think it's healthy for me as a pastor to be reminded that the kingdom of God just doesn't just come for people like Sam. The kingdom of God especially comes through people like Sam. God loves to manifest God's beauty and God's glory through people that are often overlooked and ignored. Sam will probably never preach a masterpiece sermon. She'll probably never publish a groundbreaking biblical commentary. But God is using her in profound ways to put on display his beauty. We live in a society of superstardom where we seek to glorify the grandiose and showcase the spectacular. Therefore, we often just find people who outwardly have very impressive gifts and, and appearances and talents, and, um, and we want to put them on display. We want, to put them on, we want to rush to put them on platforms and elevate them because we perceive that we can gain some, some benefit from them, and certainly often we can, but... I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus of the Gospels had a, had a habit of highlighting people that nobody else paid attention to, that everyone else ignored. Once when his disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, they were talking about greatness in the kingdom of God, and Jesus takes this little child, and puts the child on his knee, and he says, um, whoever becomes like this little child is great in the kingdom of God. Later on in his ministry, he's in the temple courts and, and he's watching uh, these wealthy folks come in and they're, they're depositing large sums of money in the temple treasury. And then right after them is this really poor, destitute widow who puts in two copper coins, the equivalent of one penny. And Jesus tells his disciples, now come here, come here, look right there. Look right there, pay attention to that. She just put in more than everybody. That same week, he's at a meal at Simon's house, and a scandalous sinner, a woman, a lady of the night, walks in, prostitute, in other words, and she pours out this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet. Everybody's horrified. Jesus says, I'm telling you something, what this woman has just done, wherever the gospel's preached in the world, they're going to hear about this. In the midst of a culture of celebrity worship, and we have, we have our own version of Christian celebrities, don't we? We've absorbed that. In a culture of celebrity worship, Jesus' people remember that the kingdom of heaven is tailor-made for simple, ordinary people. And if we're not careful, we slip right into that worldly pattern of giving special attention and applause to those in our churches who we deem to have star power. I, I never forget when I first started pastoring, I was 32 years old, wise old man, and 
I, um, I went to a church growth conference. And I remember distinctly the speaker at this one particular session was explaining to all of these, there's hundreds and hundreds of pastors, maybe thousands of pastors and leaders in the room. And, and the speaker on the platform was explaining to us, you know, how we need to think about who we platform. Who do we have up here holding microphones and playing instruments and preaching? He said, you need to pay attention to the kinds of people you put on your platform. And he encouraged us, you need to platform people who are young, sleek, talented, and, and even trendy dressers. And everybody in the room's nodding their heads, including 32-year-old Ryan Post. I, I thought, yeah, that's right, that's right. We need to find people who are young, sleek, talented, and dressed trendy. The mentality was, you know, this is what our consumeristic culture wants. This is what they're expecting, so let's give it to them. Let's cater to that instinct. Let's put our quote-unquote best foot forward. And from his definition, our best foot forward means youth, talent, sleekness, whatever sleekness is, and, and trendiness. I'm going to be honest with you, um, I bought into it. I've since learned better. I've since learned otherwise. I've since realized that the Jesus of the Gospels, if he had had this mentality, he'd have, he'd have never called fishermen to be his disciples. I don't advocate that we start handing out microphones to people that are tone deaf. I think we need to use people <laughs> in... Um, in their giftings. And I'm not saying that we should exclude people who are young or talented or sleek or trendy dressers. I'm not saying we should, we should say, no, you, you, don't, you can't. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying, what I'm calling you to, what I'm calling us to, is let's begin to ask the Spirit to give us an imagination. What could it look like for our church, for me, for you, for us, to begin to approach our lives together through the lens of the first beatitude. If in his very first statement, in his most important sermon, Jesus calls attention to the blessedness of the poor in spirit, maybe we ought to start asking these questions together in our groups and our studies, evaluating our practices and asking questions like, who do we celebrate? Who do we showcase? What stories do we tell? Who do we invite and make room for? Who might we be tempted to overlook and disregard? To whom do we give our undivided attention? This is something I have to remind myself of weekly sometimes. I'll have people I'm in a conversation with and Maybe I, out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody that I'd rather be in a conversation with. <laughs> Who do I give my undivided attention to? Rebuke me, Lord, if necessary. Churches formed by the first beatitude refuse to prioritize appearance, youth, and talent over faithfulness, humility, and sacrifice. Whether or, whether or not a person has amazing talent 
or considerable wealth or powerful influence, what these are not inherently wrong or bad things, of course, but what really captures God's attention is a certain poverty of spirit. A lot of times these kinds of folks are not outwardly remarkable, but they display a foundational component of what it means to be a kingdom person. And their lives teach us how to cultivate a heart that reflects God's kingdom vision. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.